Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are talking about two of my favorite things, video games and economics. What you see on your screen right now are a couple of the covers, maybe all of the covers, for NBA 2K21, which is going to be launching on current-gen systems as well as next-gen systems. And the big news that came out of 2K's announcement of this game is, as Ars Technica says, that 2K broke gaming's de facto $60 ceiling and will be asking $70 for next generation NBA 2K1. And this has been a topic of conversation amongst gamers, certainly of a certain vintage like myself, and just on forums for a long time, I had thought, frankly, that there was going to be a price increase during the last generation, really at the start of the PlayStation 4 era. And $60 to $70 always uh, made sense as a likely landing spot, but that doesn't mean that it's the only part of the conversation here. So as Ars Technica says here, we've been buying AAA video games at a $60 ostensible baseline price point for a long time, certainly throughout this entire seven-year generation. That isn't exactly the full story, of course, if you're in the gaming sphere, if you know the gaming industry at all, because the digital era has raised the ability of these companies to go get additional funds, either from microtransactions or digital deluxe editions or pre-selling season passes or expansions or whatever you might find. Loot boxes, of course, being a topic of conversation a lot of the places in virtual legality, as well as a lot of the places in Washington, D.C. and in legislative halls around the world. So the price point here is a little bit more amorphous than just your day one AAA budget price point, but it still represents an interesting move to add that $10 at the front end. And in fact, Ars Technica went so far today, and this is the reason for this video, to really break down why they think the $70 video game makes a certain amount of sense. And I want to say a few things up front. As I just said, $70 doesn't offend the conscience or anything for me. I really do remember the days back in the 90s where I was really excited about getting Star Fox 2, and I believe that was $70. Might have been $80 in the box, but I think it did come with a rumble pack, so there you go. And that would be more than $100 now. And there were $100 Super Nintendo cartridges, and this was kind of the way of things. But a lot of that was in respect of actually producing these goods that there were factories that needed to be used to make cartridges, that there were logistics chains that needed to be paid and used to move those cartridges from wherever they were being made to your doorstep, or more precisely in those days, to the GameStop or Electronics Boutique doorstep. So there were more and more and more middlemen that needed to be paid to get that cartridge into your hands. And Ars Technica kind of skips a lot of that discussion. But I want to dive into the article because I think it's interesting. I think there is a lot to talk about about this discussion. This is not going to be one of those videos where you finish up here in virtual legality and say, yes, this is right, or no, this is wrong. Mostly what I want to talk about is that there are a lot of details and a lot of nuance. And yes, my undergraduate days, before I was a lawyer, before I went to law school, I majored in economics. This is stuff that I really, really love. And I love seeing places like Ars Technica talk about them, but I don't think their discussion is quite as nuanced as I would have liked to have seen. 
Now, here in front of you is the table that they created. I think they did a lot of work to put this together. It is historically hard to put together average price points about the video game industry, either due to lack of record keeping, disinterest from those days, especially you're looking at the 80s and 90s here at the start of this chart. And so I give them a lot of respect for putting this thing together. But you can see one of their primary things that they've kind of hypothesized that they put forth in these two different colors in this chart, which is that as the late 90s transitioned into fully CD, you've got the Dreamcast, the PlayStation, the PlayStation 2, really moving into that optical disc framework, you had this big kick down in costs because CDs, frankly, were just a lot easier to make than cartridges. They weren't nearly as proprietary. You didn't have to make different cartridges for every different system. CDs mostly came out of the same presses that you could make music on. And so factories were ready to make CDs. This kind of transitioned into Blu-rays as things went along. But you can see indexed for inflation, the actual day one cost of a video game has been sneaking downward this whole time. And we know that to be true. Everything costs more in the world, basically, except video games, right? It costs more to buy a loaf of bread. It costs more to gas up your uh, engine in your car on average over the long, long period of time. Probably not that much here in 2020, but hey, it's that kind of year. But video games being locked into a specific price point mean that they never adjusted for your dollars going less far in other avenues of your life, that it costs more to pay for groceries, etc. So that locking in effect against inflation tends to lower the, the actual cost of the product being sold. So this is all true. But one thing that you don't really see is any kind of kick down for the digital environment. We're going to talk about that in a second because I think that's an important part of this discussion. As the article kicks off, last week, 2K made waves by becoming the first publisher to set a $70 asking price for a big budget game on the next generation of consoles. NBA 2K21 will cost the now standard $60 on Xbox One and PlayStation 4, but will get a $10 premium for the upcoming Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 with a bunch of other additions, as we have grown to expect. It remains to be seen if other publishers will follow 2K's lead and make $70 a new de facto standard for big budget console game pricing. Now, if you've ever studied economics, you know there's certain signaling going on here. Under the laws, really across the world, but certainly in the United States where I'm most familiar, different competitors, 2K, Electronic Arts, Activision, Microsoft, Sony, they aren't allowed to get into a room and say, we're only going to sell our games for $70 now. What they can do is they can go and they can bell the cat. They can be the one that goes out there and they can say, you know what, we are going to add this $10 premium and we expect everybody else to come along with us. And once you hit a critical mass of that, if two or three of these publishers say, oh yeah, $70 for the next generation, then everybody will because that's essentially free money and you're no longer competing with anyone. If, however, Electronic Arts says, oh, that's nice, 2K, NBA Live will be $50. Then you start to have a fight and that'll be interesting to watch. But I highly suspect this is a bellwether for what will be a $10 across the board AAA game price hike for the next generation. Now, Ars Technica makes the inflation point here. They say, but while $70 would match the high watermark for nominal game pricing, it wouldn't be a historically high asking price in terms of actual value. Thanks to inflation and changes in game distribution, in fact, the current ceiling for games prices has never been lower. Now, a couple of objections I have here. One, the primary one really, is that price doesn't actually dictate value. Right? When we talk about actual value, they mean the cost of the dollars, and that's perfectly fine. They're not being 
terribly precise about what they mean here, but it's a historically high asking price in terms of actual value implies that the games right now are more valuable in some real way than they were in the past. And maybe to some extent that's true. Certainly a lot more resources are going into making them. But the labor theory of value, the cost theory of value, is not one that actual modern economics holds to be true. Value is in the eye of the person purchasing the product or the service, not in how much money or how much time it spent you to make that product or service. So while we totally understand and are sympathetic to developers and publishers saying, hey, we're, we're spending a lot more money making these games, that's not really specifically answering the question of whether or not you are providing more value to game players. And that's an important distinction. Now, Ars Technica goes, they talk about their process. I think it was a good one. They say, we adjusted the nominal prices we were able to establish using the Bureau of Labor Statistics CPI inflation calculator. One thing I would note is that CPI isn't really built for that. It isn't really built to take the average of the market basket that they are setting up for urban purchasers and have it applied only across one specific product line over time. So it's not a perfect match, but I don't know that there was a better one. So we'll give Ars Technica it, but it's this isn't going to be what you would consider scientifically proven, uh, although the trend lines are probably pretty useful. Then they say a few things. They say to avoid the influence of low-priced bargain bin games or retailer discounts, we focused on the highest asking prices for individual games we could find in each year. Now that makes a certain amount of sense for what they are trying to do scientifically. They're trying to put this chart together. They're trying to make like match for like. They're trying to figure out what 1981 looks like in 1999 by making a basket of goods that is somewhat similar. That being said, when the premise of the article is that $70 makes sense now, and you are doing all of this work, you're putting this chart together to kind of backstop that argument. One of the things that happens is that you shouldn't be skipping the external pressures on the price point as part of your analysis. Right? They say they are avoiding low-priced bargain bin games or retailer discounts. That's fair for putting together the chart. It's not so fair when comparing market to market. Right, When we think about why the price of AAA games has not moved from $60, and we're going to talk about that to some length here in this video, one of the major reasons for it is that digital distribution has allowed lower-priced game alternatives, alternatives to AAA, maybe rising to double A, but maybe not, that are afforded to people that wouldn't have had the chance to play those exact kind of games in 1989, right? If you have a Nintendo cartridge, you have a certain amount of spend already put into it, already put into making it and getting it out to homes. And yes, if that game is trash and not very good, then that is something to analyze and maybe not something to put into your chart. But that is entirely different from talking about the Nintendo eShop of 2020 that releases 50 games a day, seemingly, about 10 of which are actually pretty decent, and almost all of which they will sell you for less than $15. And that is putting downward pricing pressure on AAA games. One of the most important things for you to take away from this video, if you take away anything at all, is that video games are not sold in a vacuum. We can talk about this kind of concept. Does $10 make sense? And I can agree in the hypothetical, but I want to talk about what the second order effects are of that change. Because gaming, AAA gaming in particular, aren't just being sold now against trash games on the original NES. They're being sold against brilliant indie games and free-to-play games and mobile games and all of this other stuff. And that's without even leaving the video game environment. 
If you aren't otherwise that inclined to play video games, or maybe you're just on the margin, there are so many other entertainment alternatives beamed directly to your house for a lot less money that this becomes a more important conversation and not one that you can just limit to analyzing within the scope of the video game ecosystem. Now, Ars Technica continues, says, hey, I'm old enough to remember $70 cartridges. The resulting data is a little noisy from year to year, depending on which specific games were included on existence advertisements we could track down. Over time, though, the pricing trends are still pretty easy to spot. While nominal cartridge game prices in the early 80s topped out at $30 to $40, inflation makes that the equivalent of $80 to $100 per game these days. Now, again, one of the things we're ignoring here is that the actual video game ecosystem, the number of computers that could run games, the number of NESs out there doesn't match at all the actual platform user base that is in existence right now in 2020. In general, once you lower logistics prices down to a bare minimum of digital transmission, once you increase the platform base into the hundreds of millions, you expect that downward pricing pressure. You expect to have prices maintain a certain amount of stagnancy. It doesn't mean $10 isn't right for right now, but it does mean that your thesis is starting to suffer a little bit based on the assumptions that everything today is the same except for pricing as it was in the early, late 1980s or the mid-1990s, and that just plainly isn't the fact. As the industry transitioned into 16-bit cartridges in the 90s, though, nominal prices for top-end games rose quickly past $60 in nominal dollars and $110 in inflation-adjusted 2020 dollars. That's in large part because of the expensive ROM storage and coprocessors often included in games of the day. By 1997, late-era SNES and early-era N64 games were routinely selling for $70 at many retailers, the highest nominal prices the industry has generally seen and still the equivalent of over $110 in today's dollars. Yep, absolutely. I can vouch for that. I can verify that. I can remember getting N64 games. They were very expensive. They were premiums. And you can understand why it was hard to make those cartridges. Ars Technica continues by stating that there was an optical disc plateau. The late 90s transition to disc-based games relieved a lot of the cost pressure on physical game production, which translated to generally lower prices for consumers. Now note this fact. We have had a secondary transition in the market since then, and it's somewhat ignored by this particular article. If you go and you look at any statistics that you can find, you will see that digital sales have started to take over the video game landscape. Probably if you're watching this on YouTube, that experience has already matched your own, at least to some extent. A lot of people still hanging on to physical. That's all well and good, totally fine, but a lot more people are starting to see advantages in buying things digitally. And one of the things that happened there is that we would have expected without paying for trucks, without paying for factories, without paying for planes, without paying for retail store space, that the price would have come down on digital sales. That it didn't was, I think, acknowledged as uh, okay as long as the price didn't go up, that we had a certain amount of economic detente that said, okay, you know, realistically, that game I can buy for $60 at the GameStop probably shouldn't be $60 on the PlayStation Network store because you aren't buying all of this stuff. You aren't spending money on plastic or factories or trucks or planes or on GameStop or what have you, and I should probably get a cut of that somehow, but I also understand the realities of the situation. GameStop doesn't want to sell your games if you're undercutting them on your store. Neither does Target or Best Buy or what have you. But as those specific retail outlets become less and less important as more people move to digital, 
it becomes less and less logical for us to look at this and say, oh no, $60 isn't okay. We didn't ask for it to be 50, but now $70 is okay. Psychologically, logically, people that are invested in video games already, I don't think necessarily look at this as just a $10 price increase, but also an increase on something that they thought they were already giving as a kind of largesse just from consumers to these corporations on the understanding that the real politic of their contract relationships didn't allow them to do what they should have done, which is lower the prices like we see in this optical disc plateau as described by Ars Technica. Disc prices settled down to a more reasonable $50, and that's the de facto ceiling that has remained in place to this day at $60 after it was raised in the mid-2000s. Even as digital downloads and the explosion of indie games has meant many titles now launch at well below this price. Again, this article is so close to real understanding and epiphany on a lot of these things, but digital downloads and indie games cannot be separated from the pricing question of AAA games. Finally, this article finishes by saying it is time. Now, raising a, base, a game's basic asking price to $70 won't eliminate publishers' need or desire to exploit these further revenue streams of collector's editions, downloadable content, season pass subscriptions, and annoying microtransactions, but it may help make up for the bottom line deficits brought on by ballooning development costs for graphically intensive titles in the console's coming ray tracing era. Now, a couple of things happen here. One, I want to give it up to Ars Technica, they make the right statement here, which is that all that stuff that a lot of people hate, collector's editions, DLC, seasons passes, microtransactions, all that stuff that people hate isn't going to go away for a higher entry asking point. It simply isn't. These developers and these publishers have figured out certain revenue models that get them additional money either to support their product, great, or just to cash in on the product's existence less great, but still existent. And as we've talked about in virtual legality, a corporation in general can't just ignore revenue streams with consumers that want to spend money on things and probably don't cost that much to support. So just asking for $10 more in the door won't get rid of microtransactions any more than asking any amount of money over selling Fortnite for free eliminated microtransactions from things like the 2K basketball series. So Ars Technica is exactly right here. And I want to point out a tweet that I made and one that was very popular this morning. Another reason for making this video was Corey Bal uh, Balrog, who puts together um, uh, tremendous games, is at Sony Santa Monica, made God of War for the PlayStation. And his name is actually Balrog. That's so why I was getting tripped up a little bit. He apparently goes by the Twitter handle of Balrog, the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, monster. But he said games need to go up in price. I prefer an initial increase in price to the always on cash grab microtransaction filled hellscape that some games have become. Totally with you, Corey. That's totally fine. If that was what were being offered, I think a lot more people would say, yes, if you're going to sign a consumer's bill of rights or some kind of commitment that says we're going to charge $70 now, but you won't see microtransactions from us for three to five years, then I think consumers who probably wouldn't trust that a corporation would hold to that could at least get behind the thesis. Instead, I'm left to tweet, I'm somewhat bemused at this being presented as a dichotomy because this will not happen. NBA 2K1 is not going to be sold without microtransactions. You're still going to be paying for virtual currency. You're just going to be paying $10 more to get in the door, which Ars Technica correctly and rightly, and I give full credit to them for, acknowledges. 
This raising of an asking price won't eliminate publishers' need or desire to exploit these further revenue streams, but it may help to make up for bottom line deficits brought on by ballooning development costs. That second part isn't the consumer's problem. And I say this as someone that loves video games. And, and I also say this as someone that doesn't necessarily think that you need ray tracing and photorealistic graphics to present a good video game. And I think Nintendo proves that year in and year out. Not that I don't love those games, not that I don't love seeing the detail of The Last of Us Part Two, but I'm not sure that the game loses a lot for being 10% less detailed. But when you've got these ballooning development costs, I say, wow, that sounds like a problem for you. That doesn't mean you get $10 extra from me. And while Ars Technica is in the business of reporting on these things, and I can totally understand being fine with paying $70, I'm probably fine paying $70. Don't justify it to me on the fact that you're spending too much money making your product. That's a budgeting issue. That's a process issue. That's an organizational issue. And I very much want to see you guys handle it and, and get better at it and put more games out there that I want to buy and spend money and support this industry. But it's not my problem. Those additional costs may be hard for gamers to swallow. Yes, another consideration. It is 2020. It is perhaps the greatest economic tumult that we will experience in our lifetimes, that both Sony and Microsoft will be selling multiple hundred dollar consoles to get in the door, and then the publisher or developer wants to charge a premium for you having the temerity to go and support the industry day one with what amounts to early access on the next generation of consoles starts to feel like you're being taken advantage of. So for many gamers, hard to swallow, yes, absolutely. And we're gonna get to one other aspect of that hard to swallowness. But it's a real question to do it right now. Now, they probably feel at 2K that the generational transition is the right time to hit the button because it'll be harder in year two or year three. But in particular, 2020 is a tough year to make these claims. That's especially true now that there's so much gaming competition from lower cost and even high quality free to play titles. Again, so close to making this combination work. That's exactly right. This is not a market. This is not an environment in which your choice is The Last of Us Part Two or Halo Infinite. Your choice is The Last of Us Part Two or Fortnite or Warframe or any number of other indie games that are fantastic, that are fantastic. And though Ars Technica says now it's time Maybe that's right. Who's to say? These publishers and these developers are making their own choices and they can figure out whether the demand curve and the supply curve will interact in a way that gets them more money in the door. But it is certainly not the only way to think about these things. One other notion that I have that I think that we talked about a little bit earlier in this video is that video games are not being sold in a vacuum. Ars Technica raises in this article, and we skipped over it a little bit, that these price increases are not that unusual for folks that pay for streaming, right? And that's very well true. Netflix raises their prices every once in a while, a couple bucks here and there, but you can still buy a Netflix subscription, a month of hundreds and thousands of hours of entertainment for what amounts to 12 or $15. And when you start talking about a difference in price at the video game level of $10, you're talking about a difference in price of buying a subscription to Netflix, right? Netflix didn't exist in the 1980s, in the 1990s, nothing like it did. Hulu didn't exist. Any other competitor do you want? You, you want to watch Peacock or HBO Max? Whatever you like. It didn't exist in the same fashion as it does right now. And that is an actual piece of competition for video games. You cannot 
separate out Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and all this stuff. YouTube, hey, hi, virtual legality here on YouTube. You can't separate these entertainment options from video games. So when you say you're going to sell something for $70, that $10 can be interpreted by someone else as the difference between them buying Netflix for the month or not. And then suddenly you have an absolute question about whether or not they want to be invested in video games at all. Adding on to that is the fact that you already have the kind of day one penalty box, right? You already have a concept that if you are purchasing AAA games on day one, you're a little bit stupid. And I say that as someone that buys AAA video games on day one. I feel this all the time. Within a month, within a quarter, AAA video game prices drop like a rock because of the ability of digital pricing storefronts to move prices around based on demand and to use advanced algorithms to go figure out how to maximize the revenue sources from these video games, which is all well and good. But one thing to note is when you say you're going to drop from 60 to 30, if you're going to drop from 70 to 35, that is five real dollars of difference. That is a $5 stupidity tax that you have just added to my psychology. And that $5 again can buy half a month of Netflix. You do it to me twice. I completely pay for Netflix. And then I start to think even worse about you. You might say, Rick, well, maybe they'll only drop it from 70 to 35 or from 70 to 40. Maybe, maybe that's what they wind up doing. But if they only drop things in percentages, and that's probably more likely, you're going to see a difference. You're going to see actual dollars that are going to be lost as part of just increasing that baseline price away from zero. If it were $100 and it went down to 50, you lose 50 instead of 30, whatever it might be. You're in a situation now where that stupidity tax of investing in games at their highest level of value for the developer and the publisher and the console manufacturer, which I like to do because I love this industry, is still essentially charity. Because if you wait a month, you're going to get a better deal. And if you wait three months, you're going to get an even better deal. And if you wait a year, you're going to get it for free. July's PSN games, NBA 2K20, the game that... 2K is trying to sell this year, only last year, now available to you for free. Because yes, a year has gone by, but the difference in value of these video games is not reduced to zero over the course of a year. So you have outward pressures, you have downward pressures from indie games, from your own games being sold on free services, from the fact that you want to drop those prices as fast as you possibly can, and then also from the fact that everybody on earth is playing free-to-play games. You cannot separate the Fortnites of the world from this story. So while I am totally fine with Ars Technica advocating for a $70 video game price point, and frankly for me, I'm in a blessed enough position that I think that's probably going to be fine and I'll probably still buy a number of games at the AAA price point, I will feel stupider for doing it. And a conversation like this is not complete unless you consider the entire environment in which AAA games are sold. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like, subscribe, share. We are constantly talking about the business and law of pop culture seen through the prisms of video games, movies, music, television. Not so much music. I'm not as good at that topic. But if you like this, like, subscribe, tell everybody that we're here. I love to have conversations with new people in this space. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of virtual legality.
Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.